Well, good morning, Christ Church. It is great to be with you today, whether you're joining us online or here in the auditorium. My name is Mark, and I'm one of the new pastors here on staff. As some of you know, I grew up in Sweden in the 1970s and early 80s. And at that time, there were only two TV channels. Anyone remember that time? Probably not if you're Americans. Uh, but that's what we had. And the options were extremely limited. They didn't start showing until the afternoon. And so you had two, one of two choices, right, to make what you're going to see. The, one of the positives was that you got to talk to everybody in the country about the same TV shows. But they didn't have any commercials. And so that meant you could see a whole TV show without interruptions. When we went to visit my maternal grandparents in the U.S., a whole new world opened up. You could wake up at 5 a.m. and watch these amazing cartoons. And even the, even the commercials were fascinating. And since my siblings and I weren't used to them, we hadn't really seen them, we were prime targets for their marketing. I got in touch with all kinds of needs and desires I never knew I had. <laughs> I looked at these commercials and thought, you know what, I really do need that Fisher-Price garage set to be a complete human being, Mom. <laughs> or, you know, I, this G.I. Joe figure, it really will complete my life if I get that. We gotta get that. Now, that type of messaging has gotten more subtle and savvy, that kind of marketing, over the years. But the basic approach is still the same. There's something missing. There's slimness that's missing, or relaxation or love. If you buy this, do this, experience that, then you will have it. And what about these creative <laughs> products that you never knew you needed, a UV toothbrush sanitizer. Now that could really come in handy if you're on a trip. You know, apparently it kills 99% of all bacteria, so you, know, you can be well on your way to complete oral hygiene. Or about this one? If you're an ice cream lover, <laughs> this might really be something to invest in. I've considered it, especially if I have one of those you know, Cherry Garcia cartons at home. I gotta keep that to myself. I'm really seriously considering this one. Okay, what about these? Lawn aerator shoes. When my wife Christy and I saw these, we just started laughing. You know, you see, what are you gonna do? Stand there, talk to the neighbors as you, you know, go like this? Well, as we started thinking about it, realized, you know, that might not be a bad idea. It's like instead of paying somebody else to do it or buying some expensive equipment, you could just go out there you know, with those, or I'll just grab my soccer shoes, my cleats, and do it that way. So even when these products, these products might be amazing, but actually, a lot of these products, they promise way more than they can deliver. And so this message that something is missing, you need to buy this, do this, experience that, is something that we continue to fall for, that something is missing, we need this thing to be complete. This can even happen in the spiritual realm right? Great that you have faith in Christ, but that's not enough. You need to add these things to live the victorious Christian life or the abundant Christian life, or even to be saved, to be acceptable to God. Like, you need to do good works, give to charity, or you need to have an experience, like speaking in tongues, or you need to practice this right. You need to be baptized in this way in this church in this certain context, right? And so there's all kinds of messages like that out there. And if we search for this and find this, then we will be complete. 
Now this tendency has been something that the church has faced really throughout history. That Jesus is not enough and that faith in him needs to be supplemented with something else. And we see that even in the early church. And we see that in the pages of the New Testament. And that's the background to why the Apostle Paul writes his letter to the Galatians. And in just a couple of minutes, we're going to look at the next part of the story. So if you have your app or your paper Bible, if you just want to follow along on the screen in a couple of minutes when we get there, um, this is kind of in the middle of it. But Paul, the Apostle Paul, this guy who wrote the letter, he was an early Christian leader, a Jewish Christian leader who had discovered that Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament law. And he traveled far and wide, making this message known that everyone can come to know God by grace and through faith in Jesus. And so he's in this Roman province of Galatia. It's modern-day Turkey. And loads of people come to faith in Christ. They give up their old paganism and their idolatry, and their lives are transformed. But not too much later, a group of teachers appear in their midst in these churches telling them that, you know, that's not enough that you have faith in Jesus. You have to follow the Old Testament Jewish law. You have to practice things like circumcision and the Jewish calendar, and you have to eat kosher in order to be acceptable to God. Now, when Paul gets news of this, he hits the roof. He has given his life for making the message known that Jesus has fulfilled the Old Testament. The good news that it's by grace and through faith that we are accepted before God. And so he writes this impassioned letter because he's, he knows that they're in, in danger of falling back into the slavery that they were under. By saying that Jesus is not enough, that something needs to be added to that simple faith, the heart of the gospel, which is really another word for good news, is compromised, and we risk falling into slavery again. So their relationship with God, their freedom, and their eternal destiny are at stake. And so Paul writes this impassioned plea to them and to us to return to the true gospel. And so we'll pick up here the story in Galatians chapter 4, verses 1 through 11. What I'm saying is that as long as an heir is underage... He is no different from a slave, although he owns the whole estate. The heir is subject to guardians and trustees until the time set by his father. So also, when we were underage, we were in slavery under the elemental spiritual forces of the world. But when the time set had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law, that we might receive adoption to sonship. Because you are his sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts. The spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but God's child. And since you are his child, God has made you also an heir. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were slaves to those who by nature are not gods. But now that you know God, or rather are known by God, how is it that you are turning back to those weak and miserable forces? Do you wish to be enslaved by them all over again? You are observing special days and months and seasons and years. I fear for you that somehow I have wasted my efforts on you. This is God's word. 
You hear Paul's passion coming through there. And this is in the middle of the story, so I have to read the rest to kind of get more of the context. But in this passage, Paul contrasts life outside of Christ with life in Christ. And so this first section of this passage, he's talking about those, both Jews and Gentiles, who are outside of a relationship with Christ are some, in some way still in a state of slavery. They, um, they're under a form of slavery. And it's true, as God's chosen people, the Jews have been given incredible promises of spiritual freedom and abundance. But the scriptures also make clear that these are not fully actualized. They don't fully, they're not fully owned and received until the coming of the Messiah. True, the Jews have been given God's good law that points to the Messiah and prepares them for the Messiah. But now that, uh, that he has come, it has a different function. This good law that they have been given is something that they fail to live up to and that all of us have failed to live up to again and again. And that puts us in some sense still in slavery. And likewise, he says here that the Gentiles who have not yet come to know God through Christ are also under a form of slavery to those who by nature are not gods. He's meaning the spiritual forces behind their idolatry, their pagan idolatry, the worship of the Greco-Roman gods and their elements of nature like earth and wind and fire and Poseidon and Apollo, et cetera, et cetera. Now we hear this, we think, oh, that's not really relevant today. We don't really have idols today. And I don't see very many people bowing down to statues and worshiping all I have in different parts of the world, but it's not as common in our part of the world that we do that. But does that mean we don't have idols? Well, according to the Bible, idols are really anything or anyone that take the place of the living God in our hearts. Anything that we look to, we rely on for satisfaction, significance, and security more than the living God. And that becomes an idol in our lives. It can be good things that become ultimate things. Like, for example, if work becomes my functional God, I risk becoming a workaholic. If Pleasure is what I live for. I risk becoming addicted and so on and so forth. So these good things can, can take over our lives and we can become slaves under them. And that's what Paul is saying here in verses 8 through 11, that if the Jews go back to relying on their observance of the law to make them right with God, they fall back into a form of slavery. And Gentiles risk the same thing. If they now think, okay, it's not enough just to believe in Jesus, I also need to follow the ritual law of Moses in order to be right with God, then they also fall back into the slavery that God has liberated them from through Jesus. And that's why Paul is so passionate about this. He wants more for them than that. Now, we may not be tempted to rely on our observance of the ceremonial law of Moses to save us. I don't hear much about that, but we have our own versions of essentially the same thing, adding something to faith in Jesus to make us right with God. One version is that it's the intensity of our faith that saves us, that makes us acceptable to God. You know, that it's, it's the level of our faith. If we're implicitly or explicitly trusting in the intensity of our faith, then in the end, it becomes my performance, our performance, rather than Christ's performance. And I was, that, that saves us. I was stuck in this for 
a number of years. I'd given my life to Christ as a teenager, but I wasn't sure if it really stuck. Had my life changed enough? Was I sincere enough? Did I really believe it enough? Maybe I didn't, maybe it just didn't stick the first time. So I kept praying to receive him over and over again, right? And over time, gradually it dawned on me, the penny dropped, that you know what? It's really not my faith that saves me. It's Jesus who saves me. It's not my performance. It's not the intensity of my faith and how deeply I do this and that, how much I hunger, how much I repent. Yes, it's all a part of it. But those are, those are just the hands that receive the gift. It's the object of my faith that saves me. So it's not my faith that saves me, but the one in whom I place my faith. That is what we get promised in the gospel. Think of it this way. If you step onto an elevator, you can step onto it confident knowing I have done this many times. It's gonna take me to the top. No problem at all. I don't have fear of heights. As long as the elevator works, it's gonna be no problem. You step into it confident, you press a button, you go up. Well, you can step onto that elevator nervous and full of fear, and maybe you have a fear of heights, and you feel nervous. I, I've never done this before. Is it really gonna, is it really gonna work? Well, if you step on to that elevator, and if the elevator works, whether you press it with a trembling finger or you press it with a confident finger, you will go to the top. So it's the elevator that takes you to the top. Well, it's the object of your faith that saves, not the intensity of your faith. And that is freeing news. Now, the quality of life is different, right? The outcome is the same if you're all nervous or if you're confident, but the quality of life would be better if you could step in with confidence, right? So that's what God wants for us too. Well, other versions of this legalism, this list of do's and don'ts that you have to keep or things you have to avoid in order to be acceptable to God that I've heard in my lifetime are a few here. Uh, you, you can't listen to rock music. You can't go to the movies. You can't watch TV or dance, or play cards, or use makeup. Doesn't impact me as much. You can't grow a beard. I literally heard that. You cannot drink alcohol, not even moderately. You cannot use electricity, or eat meat. Or you cannot speak in tongues. Or, get this one, you can't laugh too hard as a Christian. <laughs> I mean, what a bondage. You know, this list of things that we come up with. But it's not just things that we should not do. There are things that we should do according to this way of thinking. Like, for example, there's only one version of the Bible that's legitimate. The King James Version. That's the only one that you can read that's legit. Or women have to wear head coverings in church. Or men cannot wear hats in church, but they do have to wear coats and ties. Or in churches they say, you cannot, music was not of the New Testament, so you cannot play music in church. All of this I've heard in my lifetime, and it takes different forms throughout history. But this is something that, that um, this passage really does address. Now, many of these things I want to say are perfectly legitimate applications of God's eternal word. That can be a good thing to do. But when we start making these rules, these extra biblical rules, something that you need in order to be right with God, it's become legalism. It's become a false gospel. And that is what Paul wants to set us free from here. This list of rule gets to be a heavy burden to bear. So God wants to set us free from that kind of slavery, and he does so through Jesus. So next, Paul pivots 
to the heart of the good news in verse four there. But when the time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law to redeem those under the law. And so God is guiding history according to, his, to a plan. And in his perfect, infinite wisdom, he sent Jesus at just the right time when the time was ripe. And so God seeks us. He takes the initiative. It's not us seeking God, climbing the ladder to God. No, he comes down to us in the person of his son, Jesus, which means that Jesus is fully God. But he's also born of woman. He's born of the Virgin Mary, so he's actually fully human. And he is born under the law, under the same conditions as all of us. And all of this makes him able to fully identify with us, to be our representative before God. And because of this, Jesus is qualified to be the savior of the world who rescues us. It's a rescue operation. God comes to us and he lifts us into the boat and takes us safely to shore. And he provides here, it says, first of all, redemption. Jesus did what no one else has done. He kept the Old Testament law fully in every way, in thought, word, and action. So he completely fulfills the law's demands on us as our representative, as our advocate. He fulfills it all. He pays the full price to the law. He pays our debt in our place when he dies on the cross for us. And so we are released from it. The debt has been paid. We are free. He has torn the curtain, you know, down in the temple, which is another sermon in and of itself. But he has made it possible for us to come into the very presence of God through what he has done for us on the cross. As a young pastor in 18th century England, John Wesley was intensely committed. He even led a holy club that visited prisoners and took care of the poor and gave generously. He prayed, he fasted, he read the scriptures. He was orthodox in his faith. He was extremely dedicated and disciplined. He even traveled across the Atlantic to reach out to Native Americans for a time. But inside, he was miserable. He was in slavery. He, it's like he was dying on the inside because he was trusting in his performance. He was trusting in his righteousness to save him instead of trusting in the finished work of Jesus. The turning point came when he heard the preface to Luther's commentary on Romans being read out loud. And he said, my heart was strangely warmed. And then he says this, I felt I did trust in Christ, Christ alone for my salvation. And an assurance was given me that he had taken away my sins, even mine, and saved me from the law of sin and death. So his chains fell off, his heart was free, and Wesley was set on a whole new course, internally and externally. He spent the next 53 years spreading this amazing news of God's grace in Christ. He preached 40,000 sermons in his lifetime, and he traveled 250,000 miles on horseback, letting this be known. He paved the way for the abolishment of slavery, the slave trade in the British Empire. He was passionately against it. He reformed society. Some would say that he's one of the most influential 
people in modern history because of this good news of redemption in Christ. He was set free. And when this truth sinks in, that we are redeemed, our lives are transformed. But Jesus hasn't just rescued us from something, but for something. He's not just canceling the debt and sort of making it neutral. No, he brings us into a whole new life in Christ. And the second thing he mentions here is that Jesus provides adoption. So he hasn't just freed us from death row. No, he has made us part of his royal family. Remember the story of the prodigal son in the New Testament that Jesus tells? You know, the prodigal son, he gets the inheritance and he goes off and he spends his life in wild living. And then he sort of sheepishly comes back to the father, wondering how the father will receive him. And it turns out the father has been aching and longing for him. He's looking for him probably every day. And when he sees him on the horizon, his heart is filled with compassion. And he runs to meet his son and he throws his arms around him and he kisses him. He puts a robe on his body, a ring on his finger. He kills a fattened calf and he throws a party because the son who was lost has now been found. That is what God does for us in Christ. That's how he feels about us. That's how he treats us. If you wonder, I don't know, I've, I've messed up too much. God's, he, he wouldn't meet, meet me that way. This is good news for all of us. He has done it all so he can embrace us fully and freely this way in Jesus. He loves us with a passion. So we don't need to become rich or famous or something great. We already have the greatest status possible. We don't need really anything else to have the deepest value of all. We have been given this status as God's children. We are sons and daughters of the living God. We have been adopted into his royal family. and We get to enjoy all the rights and privileges of that. Well, this needs to sink into our hearts. This is what Jesus has done. This is a reality, but we need to allow it to fill our hearts and to permeate our souls and to change our lives. And that leads to the next point. Jesus also provides the Holy Spirit. When we get connected to Christ through faith, God says, sends the spirit of his son into our hearts. So God himself comes to live in us by his Holy Spirit. This is just an amazing truth that we get to read about in the New Testament. This is promised in the Old Testament. Now, of course, the Holy Spirit has always existed. He hovered over the creation, you know, the waters of the creation. He was present and active among God's people in the Old Testament, the Israelites. And he came upon the leaders and the prophets and even the artists to inspire them and equip them and empower them for what he wanted them to do for these various tasks. But that was limited. It was only for certain people. But the scriptures promise that one day God would pour out his spirit on all of his people in that way. And in fact, an even deeper, more intimate way than had ever been possible before. That is a key part of what the, what the good news of the gospel is. A new covenant, this new agreement that God makes with his people. He fulfills the Old Testament. He fulfills these promises. He makes them real to us. He brings us home. So we now get to be his sons and daughters. And he begins to witness in our hearts about that. The Holy Spirit leads us to cry, Abba, 
Father. Abba is like saying daddy. It's the Aramaic word that Jesus himself used. Very, very rare in the, in the Old Testament. In fact, I don't think it occurs in the Old Testament or in the literature of the time. This is something that Jesus, a phrase he used to talk to his daddy. It's an intimate, affectionate term of closeness and nearness and intimacy. And this he allows us to do as well. He brings us into that relationship. And the Holy Spirit helps us to pray that way. He leads us. He assures us that we are God's children. And it says in the Old Testament that he will write God's laws on our heart. He will move us to follow his ways, to desire to do it, and have a new power to do it because he gives us a new heart and he gives us his very own presence to empower us. How do we, how do we live the Christian life? Well, not in our own strength. We live it in the power of the Holy Spirit by depending on him. So how do we do that? How do we depend on the Holy Spirit to live the Christian life? It's impossible on our own. But he gives us a desire and the power to do it. And so how do we sort of tap into that? Well, the Holy Spirit is likened to a mighty wind. Jesus talks about that in John 3. And so this wind is blowing. And our role is to then raise our sails, to hoist our sails and catch that wind and be propelled forward. So we need to position our sails. I remember when I first started windsurfing, I was, was probably about 20 years ago now, at uh, Northwestern University. I was there with a friend, had the beach behind me, had the beautiful campus of Northwestern to the left, a bit of a skyline of Chicago to the right, love that area. It just, and you have the vastness of Lake Michigan in front. It was a beautiful September day. And at first, you know, I was trying to get up on the board and I'd fall off to one side and then I would get up on it again and fall off to the other. And then I was trying to balance on the board and then hold the, you know, hold the, the, the sails and so I could position myself to be able to catch the wind. It took a while to get a hang of it. But when I finally was able to do so, I was able to catch the wind and I was driven forward, propelled forward, not through my strength, really not much my ability at all. It was just catching that wind. And so our responsibility is to raise our sails and catch the wind so we are driven forward by God's spirit. And one of the most practical ways for me to do that is what someone's called spiritual breathing. You, know, you exhale carbon dioxide, you inhale fresh oxygen. So the carbon dioxide is getting rid of those things that aren't right. I'm sorry, God, for that. And thought, word, and action. And I give you my fears. I give you my anxieties. I give you this thing I'm dealing with. And then I breathe in fresh oxygen. Lord, would you... Forgive me. Would you give me grace, new power to become the person you want me to be? So I raise my sail. I receive your power. We can walk in the spirit. And I believe you hear more about that next week when we get to chapter five. So, so keep listening, keep reading. But that is a reality that each of us, by grace, get to step into. The Holy Spirit is a water our thirsty souls need. You know, I'm reminded as I often said that, I believe it was G.K. Chesterton who said, every man who goes knocking on the door of a brothel is actually looking for God. We're looking for God in all the wrong places, but he is present, he is with us, he wants to fill us. I want more of this, and I think all of us need it and do. Well, finally, Jesus provides us an inheritance. It says, since you are his child, God has made you also an heir. An heir of what? Well, in part what Paul has already talked about in this passage. But there's also a future dimension to it. 
We only get a foretaste of it in this life. There's a glorious reality awaiting us beyond our wildest dreams. I was having a conversation with my 19-year-old son, Axel, uh, when he was five years old. He's now 19, five at the time. And uh, we were sitting there at the kitchen table. We had random conversations when we were fishing or driving or just playing or you know, walking in the woods, whatever. But this happened to be at the kitchen table. I remember it well. And he said, Daddy, I don't want to go to heaven. I thought, wow, okay, that's interesting. Tell me more. And so he said, well, you know, I like my friends. I like my school. I like running around in the woods and playing and riding bikes. And I like living here at home. I, in fact, I like it on earth. I want to I be here. And then it hit me, you know what? That is actually our hope. Because the scriptures promise that we will, we're headed for a new creation. Heaven, as wonderful as it is, it's a layover. The final destination is a new creation. You see this, glimmers of this in the Old Testament, and it's fulfilled at the end of time when Jesus comes back. It says that heaven will come to earth to heal and restore and renew all things. Everything that's bad will be gone. Evil, sorrow, sickness, pain, death, and everything that's good will be here and be even better. We will have resurrection bodies, no longer get sick and have aches and pains. We will have fantastic things to do. We will be able to see those who have died in the faith before us. We will finally see God face to face in a glorious reality. There will be fun things to do. It will be culture. It will be adventure. The things on your bucket list they didn't have time to complete in this life, you can complete then and make it even, it will be even better. That's, that's the picture that is painted for us. So we're not going to just sit there and play harps on a cloud. Although that, for some people, maybe that is, you know, part of what, what heaven is all about. Not knocking that, but it will be beyond our wildest dreams. We have a glorious, fantastic future awaiting us. And that sounded much better to Axel. And frankly, I think it's, it resonates with all of us because that is our destiny. This earth is good. It's fallen, but God will restore and redeem this earth. It'll be a glorious new sort of combined spiritual, physical reality. You can read the end of Revelation if you want to meditate on that some more. Well, this new life that Paul has described for us is a free gift that comes to us on account of Jesus. We receive it by faith, simple act of faith, not based on what we do or who we are, but on what he has done and who he is. This is a free gift. These things all come to us by faith. So if you have never received that gift, today could be the day. One way to do that is just to express it in a simple prayer. Three words might help. Sorry. Sorry, God, for turning my back on you, for all the things that aren't right in my life. That's the biblical word repentance, right? Returning over and we're saying, God, I need your forgiveness. Just recognizing our need. And then the second word is thanks. Thank you for sending Jesus who paid for my sins on the cross so that I could be forgiven and have new and eternal life and be reconciled to you. And the third word is welcome. Welcome into my life. Be my savior and Lord. Come into my life by your spirit. I give my life to you. I want to follow you. Whatever words you use, God sees our heart. It's a simple prayer to him. And, and he promises to come in. He's knocking at the door of our hearts. He wants to come in. But what about those of us who have already taken that step? 
Well, my challenge is this. My encouragement is this. As Tim Keller says, the gospel is not just the ABCs, but the A to Z of the Christian life. Now, Tim Keller just died a couple weeks ago. He's one of my heroes. Anything he writes is fantastic, in my, my opinion. He is extremely well-read. He reached out amongst secularized, sophisticated New Yorkers for over three decades. He's super intelligent. And so when he says something like this, I listen. And the more I think about it, the more I realize that that phrase there, the gospel is not just the ABCs, but the A to Z of the Christian life the more it resonates with me because the gospel is central. It impacts all of life. It leads to transformation as we allow its truth to sink in more and more. And the rest of the, this book will talk about that more, the application of this truth. And so you have to keep reading, keep listening, leading in to, to get more of that. But just for starters, just a few areas. Worship is something that we do not to get God to like us, but to get to know God better, to express our love to him, to be changed by him. That's why we show up. We don't serve in order to get brownie points, in order to you know, anxiously and selfishly try to prove something to God or others. No, we do it because we want to extend his love to others. We grow, not because we have to prove something or because we need to get points again, but we grow because we want to change. We want to become more like Jesus. We want to experience more of the abundant life that he gives. The gospel truly changes everything. It impacts all areas of life. So let's lean in. Let's receive it. Let's allow it to transform our lives for God's glory, for the benefit of others, and for our own joy. Would you pray with me? Lord God, we thank you for the amazing news of the gospel, that you have sent your only son to us so we could be reconciled to you, that we could have new and eternal life, that we could be transformed, that we could be free. I ask you, Lord, that you would show us the truth and the beauty and the goodness of the gospel, that on a daily basis it's become deeper. Wherever we are on our journey, whether we're just checking this out or we've been walking with you for years, I pray that the gospel would seep into our hearts deeply, transform our lives for your glory, for the benefit of others, and for the good of the world. We pray for this in your name, Jesus. Amen.